Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, If you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to go over what can only be called the worst weekend so far in the Biden administration. It's been like watching an implosion that is both slow and fast. Slow in the fact that it's been happening across many days, but fast in that it all seemed to come crashing down this past week, or really, this truly this past weekend, and it's happened on every front possible. So I'm going to go through all that, and then after that, the Light Items segment will cover the 159th anniversary of the signing and issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln in 1862. We covered some of this, and you can hear a lot about it when it comes into terms of Juneteenth, but the actual signing and issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation happened in September of 1862, and then went into effect in January of 1863. So it's kind of a little bit of an interesting history there. So that is the agenda for this week's show. So we can jump right in here at the top. So I mentioned, I was talking about the implosion of the Biden administration this past week. And... It really got to, to me thinking on on a really more of a literature level. Um, two of my favorite classic novels are The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne and A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. I'm currently rereading A Tale of Two Cities at this moment, so this could be more why a lot of this language is in my mind as I'm sort of looking at the Biden administration as it's gone through this week. And there's lines in both of these books that I think apply to both. Um or really specifically to the Biden administration. Um, the first is obviously, I think, the opening stanzas of, of A Tale of Two Cities, which are just beautiful writing, straight up. Um, the introductory chapter, I think, is probably, uh, not even probably, just scratch that, is some of the greatest writing in the English language. Um, Dickens writes these famous passages. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. 
There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries, it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state preserves of loaves and fishes that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our Lord, 1775. Just great writing. The year to, I mean, when you're trying to understand this writing and what he's pointing to is you have to focus in on, the, on that, particularly that last part there about the year, because it's a setup. Because he's writing about, I mean, the tale is about two cities, London, Paris, and the revolutions that take place. So 1775, you're just before the American Revolution. You're just a few years before the French Revolution when they start executing people across the board. And pandemonium sets in. And one of his lines that he uses there is that everyone thought in general that things had been settled forever. All the major questions had been answered on, on government, on politics, and all these different things. There were problems, but they were just contradictions. And it's sort of a beautiful way of putting that because in 1775, you're on the precipice before things got pushed over the ledge and the world got turned upside down and changed forever. There were obviously rumblings of that happening, but it actually hadn't happened yet. So, it's kind of, I mean, I'm not talking about the Biden administration in terms of it's a French Revolution and people are going to kill each other and all those sorts of things. It's this, it's this sense where everything is falling apart with the administration. And then you have over here this, this sense that people are projecting that everything's fine. There's this sense that, you know, we have all these vaccinations going out the door and we have that improvement there. But also the pandemic is still raging. You have, well, we're recovering in the economy from the pandemic, but inflation is rampaging everywhere. You have, we're pulling ourselves out of a war in Afghanistan after 20 years. That's a good thing. And Americans are still trapped in Afghanistan, threatened by the very forces that we said that we were going to defeat 20 years ago. So it's that those kinds of contrast. They say that you know we're we're entering into the best of times, but in many cases these are some of the very worst of times for this administration. And and it's the list of stories that keep coming in. And, and I think this is where the where the mysterious island. I'm going to read a quote here from the mysterious island. I think it captures this pretty well. Um, the lines from this it's much shorter, but it's towards the beginning of the book when they're crashing down from a hot air balloon because in Jules Verne's story. The people in the mysterious island, they end up on this, this island having to survive, and they're crashing out of a hot air balloon. And it comes out of the Civil War era. And there's these lines of dialogue here. Uh, it starts off and it says, Are we rising again? No, on the contrary. Well, are we descending? Worse than that, Captain. We are falling. And that, in my mind, is a perfect description of the Biden administration. They're so focused on their polls and they're standing in the in the public, they're standing in the punditry in the press. That they're t- they're, t- they're talking about oh you know Biden's polls are down they could bounce back up, but this is not about that ascending or descending anymore. This is an administration in free fall, crashing to be more specific. the The term that I'm going to use that I'm using in my Monday column is that it's an implosion by this administration. Because nothing about what they're presenting about themselves makes sense. There are too many contradictions, as I said, you know, using the Dixon, uh, Dickinson, some, uh, his, his phrasing here. They're all 
these contradictions where they present one thing, but the reality is another. And this past weekend, this past weekend was when that really started to hit home. And the reason I'm using an implosion is because these events involved involved every single part of the Biden presidency. We're talking foreign policy, domestic policy, and even the president's health. Even him personally. It literally involves everything you want to look at with this administration. None of the news has been good. So there are a couple of different sources uh, I'm going to go through here. The Daily Mail, the UK really sort of, they put a fine point on this uh, because they were, they, were, they were talking about a story where, where Biden was going on vacation to the beach and, you know, he's going on vacation and then the world falls apart. So this is how they let off. Headline and their main bullet points and all. They said, President Biden, 78, hits the beach as the Pentagon admits it killed seven kids in a drone strike. The French recall their ambassador. The FDA blows up his booster plans. And 12,000 Haitian immigrants set up camp under a bridge in Texas. Biden departed D.C. on Friday morning as multiple crises unfolded. Late Friday, the Pentagon admitted killing, killing 10 civilians in bungled drone strike. France recalled their ambassador to the United States in anger over the Australia-United Kingdom and United States pact. And the FDA rejected Biden's demand to give COVID booster shots to the general population. A migrant camp of 10 to 12,000 Haitians is quickly growing at the border in Texas. Biden will spend the weekend in seclusion in, at his mansion in Rehoboth Beach. Just some massive headlines there. Each involving just unique areas. I mean, going across the board. I mean, you have these, these main things involving foreign policy. You, we've got the French now who are furious with us because we cut them out of a foreign policy decision that impacted them, actually, as part of this, because they were the ones who were helping supply Australia with some of these submarines. And then we step in, cut them out, and don't give them any heads up. Kind of a bad play on our, their, our part on that. That's why they were one of the reasons they were calling their ambassadors. Uh, they were already, and Europe was already incredibly angry about how we treated all them with the withdrawal in Afghanistan. Uh, so basically, our, our relationships with our allies is in shambles at the moment. Uh, people joked about this happening during the Trump administration, but pe- these countries weren't recalling their ambassadors. I think you need to kind of be clear here of what's happening here. And then there is this ongoing border crisis, which is very real. I mean, you can go and look up at the videos and the, and the pictures. There are ten to 12,000 people living under a bridge outdoors because the United States federal government is not processing them fast enough. And these are people who we see entering the country illegally. They're literally crossing over certain areas. The uh, Texas had to send in their police forces to help stem the tide of people flooding over because people living under the bridge, at that, that extent, that is a humanitarian crisis. There's no food. There's no water. There are no facilities. It is a disaster. And Biden, as usual, does not care about anything that's happening on the southern border. That is obviously all bad. It's also not all that happened over the weekend. We also have progressives progressives threatening to block the entire $3.5 trillion uh, infrastructure bill that Bi- that is right now the main piece of Gi- Biden's legislative agenda that he wants to push through. And it's not just progressives, 
moderate Senator Joe Manchin is also saying he's going to block the $3.5 trillion spending bill and now outright opposing it. He's now saying that he wants to punt any new spending plan into 2022, so next year. Now, politically, this sounds generous because his essential argument is we're going to punt it to 2022 because inflation is an issue now. We want to push this off until we know further what inflation is going to do. This is an argument that I've made. I think it, it just, policy-wise, it is a smart thing to do. Politically, what this means, it sounds generous, but politically, it's actually slightly underhanded because what it means is that if you kick it into 2022, it's not going to happen because 2022 is an election year, and the moment you ha- you you put around the necks of some of these moderates the idea that they're going to have to pass a $3.5 trillion spending plan with all these different progressive boondoggles in them, that's going to get hung around their necks come election time, either in a primary or a general election. Manchin knows this, Biden knows this. All God's children know this in Washington, D.C. If this gets moved into 2022, it will not happen. It has to happen this year to give everyone a chance to recover and put it behind them. So you've got progressives threatening this entire thing because they want more extreme stuff in it. You've got Manchin threatening all of this because he doesn't he doesn't want to inflame inflation, which is the only rational argument here. Republicans aren't supporting it basically on the same grounds, but also because Democrats are split on this. There's really no reason for Republicans to step in and help them out here. Biden all but killed negotiations that some of the Republicans wanted to do here by stabbing them on the back, by saying one thing in the press, or not, well, one thing in private and another thing in the press. So the negotiations there got killed off. They're basically dead on arrival. And it's not just that. Biden is now burning down his bridges with Joe Manchin because one of the stories that got reported about this is that Joe Biden called Manchin personally and in a profanity-laden tirade got on to him about not supporting the Democrats' plan. Now, I think eventually you're going to see um, Manchin come around to supporting some kind of spending plan here. He's trying to reduce it now. Um, I think the infrastructure side of this is more important than the bigger, what Democrats are calling human infrastructure. Um, It's a good play on words. It's obviously none of it involved in human infrastructure. It's all just dumb politic and sloganeering. But I think Manchin's going to come around eventually. But the fact that he's blocking this now is really making Democrats' lives harder. And it's causing more divisions to erupt in the legislative process. So that entire thing currently up in flames. Also, on the congressional front, you have Kirsten Cinema, who told the White House she would not support their new prescription drug legislation, dooming it from the outset. This is something Biden wanted to run on in 2022. It's now off the table because she said she won't vote for it. She's a, the moderate senator out of Arizona. So now, now that is dead. <laughs> and then you, you shift over into some of this foreign policy stuff. You have uh, General Milley, who was caught undermining the President of the United States and the entire civil command structure. He went behind the administration's back, starting under the Trump administration, basically told the Chinese he would give them advance warning if we were ever going to attack them. Um, You just can't do that. If you're a general, that is not your job. It is the job of the civilian side of the United States government to negotiate with our adversaries. 
This is all coming out in a big Bob Woodward book. Uh, I think it releases either this week or the next week. Uh, got it pre-ordered. It'll be interesting to read this. There's a lot of backpedaling right now happening where everybody's saying, oh, this is fine, this is you know this or that. Uh, it's really not. It is really not okay for the military side of this to take an official position of the U.S. government and take an option away from a U.S. president. That is not their job. He should be fired on the spot. This is true of any president. This is their prerogative. This is their power. It's also the power of the U.S. Congress. These are not decisions to be made by generals. So there's that. You've got the military civilian command structure kind of up in flames at the moment. Biden is not going to hold him responsible for what has happened there because he thinks this is smart policy. He generally agrees with it. So we're not going to get any accountability here for a general stepping out of his line, even though she should be summarily fired on the spot for the exact same reason, by the way, that the military fired uh, the lieutenant, was it the lieutenant colonel or, or the, the Marine? I, I had his audio up a few weeks ago who wanted accountability over Afghanistan. Millie should be fired on the same grounds that that guy was fired. He's out of line. He's not doing his job here. He should be out of a job right now. But nothing's going to happen because Biden doesn't hold anyone accountable on this unless they challenge him, and Millie doesn't do that. So that's great. You also had this past week, inflation is up 8.3% year over year on the wholesale products. ABC News added that food prices were up 2.9% last month after falling in July, and over the past year, wholesale food prices have climbed 12.7%, including surges of 59.2% for beef, again, nearly 60% for beef, and 43.5% for shortening and cooking oil. That's a lot. Energy prices rose 0.4% from July and are up 32.3% over the past year. So if you're paying more for electricity, paying more for oil or gas for your car, that sort of thing, there's a reason. Because also, oil surged past $75 a barrel this past week, meaning gas prices are going to continue going up. So there's your entire inflation thing. And and what Biden wants to do is, is pour more gasoline onto the inflation fire by passing more spending plans. Everyone knows this is going to push inflation higher because that's what that's going to do. And there are, of course, as you've no doubt no doubt noticed, if you've gone out shopping anywhere, there are shortages across the board. If you go into a grocery store, there are shortages. If you go into a Walmart and just try to get regular goods, there are shortages there. There are random things across the board where there are shortages and no real explanation. I mean, you can research why there are all these different shortages, but it's just hitting things across the board. And now, shortages aren't just hitting things you're buying in the store, they're hitting our COVID-19 response. We have have testing shortages now. That's one of the reasons I can't use tests anymore as as an accurate barometer, is because we now have shortages. We we cannot hit the two to three million mark that we were hitting in the winter. You know, we're eight months past that, and now due to regulations that the Biden administration has put in place, we now have shortages on tests. We also now are resorting to rationing the monoclonal a- antibodies for COVID-19, one of the treatment plans that we use for that. Um, instead of focusing on finding ways to expand our supply, like we've done in every other situation, we expanded our supply of ventilators, we expanded our supply of PPE, we've expanded our supply of just about everything. 
The Biden administration isn't doing that here. We've had this treatment since last year, and the Biden administration has done nothing to expand that access. They talk about doing all these different things, but now they're focused on rationing because they see shortages. And unlike the, the Trump administration, which sought to expand access to things and expand our supply, the Biden administration is not doing that. It's just rank incompetence here. And this is, you know, ignoring things like how they've, they've handicapped and, and, and handicapped things like the vaccination rollout and other things like that. So that's that. Again, this is all happening this past week. You also had late Sunday, the Senate parliamentarian has rebuked Democrats and said they can't sneak new forms of immigration legislation through the reconciliation process. Uh, this was, if you're a sane person, this was expected by everybody. This is unexpected by Democrats who just want to shove everything through. So the reconciliation process, you can get past the filibuster by going, pushing things through this special legislative function. So what Democrats said is, you know, well, we can do that and we don't have to worry about a filibuster and it's just a 50-50 vote. Well, let's shove everything through that way. It's a budget thing. It's a budget recon- reconciliation process. Uh, so it has to be a budget thing. But now they're wanting to pass full-blown legislation through this thing instead of going the normal legislative path, you know, building majorities and teams. That's not an option. They're trying to do this through other means, and everyone says, well, of course, you cannot do that. So they learned that this over this weekend. Uh, oh, and also, you cannot also forget now, um, Americans are still trapped in Afghanistan, and the White House continues to lie about the number of people trapped over there. So I'm looking back over this list. I think we covered all the high points. We've got domestic and foreign crises everywhere across the board in leadership, in in the economy, in foreign relations, just across the board. Literally everything is on fire at the moment. Uh, And the Biden administration learned all of this the moment that he went on vacation or sometime before that. And all these headlines are mostly coming in since Friday. It just shows an implosion, policy-wise, across the entire Biden administration. Everything they've tried to do has blown up in their face so far. Nothing has been successful. These are the people who said, you know, thank goodness the adults are back in charge. Well, there's, there's very little evidence that they know anything about what they're doing. I mean, no evidence at all. And the other thing is that they've shown no capacity so far to pivot and grow into their roles. Uh, they just fail. They move on to the next thing, fail there, and then hope that you forget the new failure or forget the old failure because you've got a new failure on your hands. That's basically the press plan here. They failed in Afghanistan, so now they're moving back to Congress and legislative stuff. They want to push through some immigration stuff, and now that's failing. So I guess this next week they'll try to fail on something new. Um, I'm kind of losing track of what they could fail on next because literally every phase of the administration is in complete and total disarray. And it's not just policy-wise here. <laughs> you know, you've got Biden on vacation, and he is actually part of the problem, too, because we have bad news coming in about him personally. Uh, we had uh, and this, there was this interesting report. It was from the Associated Press. So this is not, you know, some harebrained thing coming from right-wing media. This is the Associated Press, a wire service. At the end of one of their stories on Biden's vacation, and it was also covering all these various failures, they took this in at the end. 
They said the White House is also scaling back the president's travel so he can support the agenda on Capitol Hill, but it's led to concerns among some Democratic lawmakers that Biden isn't doing enough to personally sell the legislation to their constituents across the country. Some aides worry about the exposure level Biden may have faced when he mingled in groups during a recent trip to the West and his three stops to mark the September 11th anniversary, two officials said. Biden, 78, also did not get a summer vacation. His plan to spend time at his Delaware home in August was scuttled by the Afghanistan crisis. Aides had finally scheduled him a break a long weekend at his house in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, he reached his home on Friday just after 1.30 p.m. So think about that for a second. Earlier in the story, they talk about how they're trying to put more events on his schedule to, to sell this legislative process. But now they're scaling back his travel. And they're scaling it back. Uh, they're, they're pitching it as, well, he's focusing on Capitol Hill, so we're just keeping him closer to the White House to do that. Um, but... Most people in Congress don't think he's actually doing a good job doing that, so he's actually of no, very little value here. The only thing he's done so far is going on a tirade against Joe Manchin over the phone with Manchin, which is not going to build any bridges. And now his aides, secretly here, are telling the Associated Press that they are concerned that he's being that he's being exposed here. And you know, the, the story only puts it vaguely. Some aides are worried about the exposure level Biden may have faced when he mingled in groups. They never say the word COVID-19, but that's exactly what that means. They're worried that Joe Biden, who's old and vaccinated, is being exposed to COVID-19, and he may get it as a result of that. Now, I'm going to say up front, that's a good concern to have. It's a very good concern to have. And because Biden is old and he does not he does not appear to have good health. So that last sentence of the AP writes... Um, they put that in about when he reached his home um, because that's when the negative story started falling. And just prior, ironically enough, just prior to him going on his, this mini vacation here, reporters in the West Wing were questioning White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about Biden's health. And the New York Post gave this follow-up write-up. They said, President Biden's persistent coughing and clearing his throat while addressing the public, sparked questions at the White House briefing on Thursday about the health of the president after he paused several times to clear his throat during his speech on tax heights just minutes earlier. Now remember, these questions are coming after the Associated Press has already pointed out that the administration itself is worried about Biden's mingling with people. I'm not saying that he has COVID. I'm saying that the administration is worried about it. And now the press is asking about it, and I want you to know here who asked this question. Quote, Many of us were in the East Room watching the president. We've seen him on many occasions where he had a repeated cough. What is the situation with that cough, and is it a concern? Asked NBC News' Kelly O'Donnell. So NBC News, by no means a conservative outlet, is asking about the, the president's health. The Associated Press is quoting people as saying that they're scaling back the president's travel here, and there are people in the administration who are worried about his exposure. Now, the New York Post is the one who summed all this together, but these are all questions from people who are nowhere near being conservative or right-wing or libertarian. 
These are your rock ribbed, you know, center left style places. And I would consider NBC News a pretty far left news outlet. I have problems using them a lot of times. They're to the left of the New York Times in my book. But they're the ones asking this question. So again, here's what NBC News' Kelly O'Donnell asks. She says, Many of us were in the East Room watching the president. We've seen him on many occasions where he had a repeated cough. What is the situation with that cough, and is it a concern? Quote, it is not a concern, said White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Quote, we have a doctor who travels with him, obviously who checks in if, he's a, if it's ever warranted, and certainly that continues, that continues to be the case, as it has been since the beginning of his presidency, she added. So that's their official answer to that question. The press pushed on. Quote, is there an explanation for why he coughs so frequently in situations like that, O'Donnell pressed. Quote, I don't think it's an issue of concern. I think there are a range of reasons why we may need to clear our throat, we may have a little slight cold, or have a little light cold, and that's certainly something that presidents, elected officials, reporters, spokespeople can confront. Pasaki uh, responded, ignoring the frequency with which Biden's public comments have been interrupted by his flamey delivery. Later in the briefing, Pasaki was asked when Biden would get a physical examination. She said, quote, I know this is an understandable question. I don't have an update. He will get one soon. And when he does, we'll make sure you are all aware of it and get the information, she said. So let's go back to this thing. They're asking, you know, why does he cough so frequently? And they just say, well, you know, it's not an issue concern. And, you know, there could be a range of reasons here. He could have a little like cold or something else, and everyone deals with it. This is, in political speak, very clearly an evasion. And Pisaki does this all the time. And, you know, my left-wing friends like to say, well, you know, she doesn't want to lie. So she, she, she just doesn't eat. She'll say, you know, she'll come back to that, which she rarely does. Or she'll say that she's, you know, she'll say things like this, where she, she doesn't answer the question but promises to come back to it later. And these are not answers. These are very clearly evasions. And for this administration, which relies pretty heavily on things like the noble lie and emissions, you can take this as a lie. She's lying here. And this doesn't mean she's lying and he's got COVID or he's got bad health, but it does mean that they are very defensive about this question and are just not being trustworthy or honest about it. Because you can't say that it's, you know, it's just something that people all deal with and also say, as you know, leaking privately from the administration that you are restricting his travels. And that's something we can see, by the way. We can see the president's travel schedule and how they're limiting it. So that has a factual basis. The rest of this does not. And again... I don't blame them for doing this. He's 78 years old. If you were talking to anyone in that age cohort and you were saying, we're going to keep them out of big groups, we're not going to send them through like something like an airport, we're going to try to keep them, even if they're vaccinated, we're going to keep them masked up or something. Totally get that. I think that is a sound policy to have. But that's not what they're saying here. Which has further made me wonder the following. If Joe Biden did get COVID-19, would this administration admit it if questioned? 
When it came to Trump, it was like pulling teeth with them to get any kind of information out. We basically learned that he had it, and then on the backside, we were learning about treatments and things like that. So what would the Biden administration do? Because I could fully see them saying that they kept it a secret for national security purposes or something else and didn't want to spook the markets or just any kind of... I could see them saying all kinds of things like that to say that they didn't have a duty to tell the public exactly what was happening. This administration and the Democratic bureaucrats in general have really fallen in love with the fabled noble lie where, you know, they, they, they have greater interest in their hearts and so that gives them the ability to lie about things when questioned about it. Now, I'm not wishing anything ill on Joe Biden. I'm certainly not here. I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is what is the truth? What is really happening here? Because these questions are coming out. And these stories are coming out at a time when the rest of the administration's policy is imploding. Everything is haywire. So these questions on health, which in a vacuum would not be a big deal, are a much larger deal when you pair them with the just litany of of just disasters on multiple fronts, from the domestic side to the foreign policy side, None of this looks good, and when you're looking at each one, if you and this is what the White House does, they want you to only look at this in a vacuum and isolated by itself. But if you place every last single one of these things in a context, it is a White House out of control. These are people who are trying to control optics, but cannot control what is actually happening. And so they are desperate to keep the optics saying one thing, while the things that we're learning are just not the other way. Which is why, you know, I had all that all that language at the beginning about Charles Dickens and a tale of two cities. Because it's two things here. These are a contradiction of terms. And none of it makes sense. And I would like them to be much more transparent on these things because I think it would help. The other thing to think about here and this is, I'll just admit up front, this is a little more morbid, is that you kind of have to think in actuarial terms. you got, so it's 2021. We're three years from the next presidential election. Next year is the midterm elections. Joe Biden is 78. Nancy Pelosi is 81. Chuck Schumer is a sprightly 70 compared to everyone else. Uh, Mitch McConnell is 79. And Donald Trump is 75. If you take... Chuck Schumer out of that. Donald Trump is the youngest at 75, and everyone else is almost averaging 80 years old right there. And in 2024, we've got Biden up for re-election again. You've got Donald Trump talking about running again here. Uh, he's going to be 78. Biden's going to be 81. Pelosi's going to be 84. And Mitch McConnell's going to be 82. Just on pure actuarial tables alone, in the middle of a global pandemic, you have to factor in the fact that deaths could come here. Not trying to be overly morbid here, it's just you, you have to factor that in here. And even though these people have the best health care possible, even though you know their odds are much better than any of us because they've got the very best at their hands, you have to factor this into your thinking here. And that's why it's smart for these reporters to ask these questions. 
They should be asking it of all of them. I don't blame them one bit for those kinds of questions. And I don't think people have really factored this into most of their political talk. You see people hinting around at it, uh, mostly in terms of Biden. But this applies across the board here. And if they do factor it in, it's kind of all in whispers or kind of implications. But that's just not good enough here. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. And even when vaccinated, this cohort, you're talking north of 75. I mean, the CDC is friendly here when they use the 65, 65 and up category. When you add five years to any of those, those age groups, the, the mortality rate with COVID-19 just skyrockets. And you've got Biden here at 78. You know, getting close to 80 here. And this is a serious thing. He cannot get this. So I get why they would want to, re, you know, restrict him here, because I would too. If I, you know, just, if you're thinking from the administration standpoint, if there's somebody there, you would want to keep them out of the, out of the public out of these public places because it, it's just bad for his health. It's bad for other reasons because he can't he can't go to any event without eventually just vomiting out words that are just pure and utter nonsense. But that's another issue. From a health standpoint and wanting to protect the administration, I get why they want to keep him away. From a transparency standpoint, though, you've got to be upfront with the American people about this. Because you've got Kamala Harris over here who could be president real quick just because of just simple actuarial math. But anyway, uh, that's kind of a separate spiel for what I wanted to get to today. Because overall, it's just been a really bad weekend for the Biden administration. Jim Psaki, she said that the day that American troops died in Afghanistan, the 13 that we lost... She said that was the darkest day for the administration, and I think that's probably true. That was a dark day for me as I was watching that all transpire. Um, This weekend may not be as dark, but it has been bad, and it has been an implosion for the administration that likes to put out the optics that it's in control and understands what it's doing, but events suggest otherwise. So what can they do next? I, you know, I don't really know here. I can't because there's so many unique things here that are going wrong, just across the board on every level in every facet of the administration. It's hard to game all of this out. I mean, I've tried, I've thought about it. I, it's it's almost impossible to do because you have to approach each one as its own thing, find a solution there, and then broaden yourself out, look at everything happening together, and see if you can actually manage that. And that's almost impossible to do here. Way too many unique things. Way too many variables. And, uh, you know, obviously the people who are working there are getting paid to make those decisions. But so far, I mean, I I would challenge anyone who thinks they can handle this to point to one situation. Point to one situation where they've proven, the Biden administration has proven that they can handle one of these flare-ups. Because I've yet to see one. I mean, I keep waiting. I'm watching the, these, this vaccination rollout, and we were getting close to a million. Again, this is after the Johnson & Johnson pause. I know I've gone over this multiple times, but the Johnson & Johnson pause basically nuked America's capacity to respond to this as a pandemic. We, the, the vaccinations were climbing up again, getting close to a million. And then you have this mandate come out, this mandate speech, which, by the way, we still don't have the text. That was about, you know, I'm recording on a Sunday night, and this was 10 days ago. I have no idea why we don't have this text yet. 
No idea at all. And, you know, if you're going to talk about this being a pandemic and needing an immediate response, you would think you would have had that text ready to go. You would have worked, got the best people on it, and gotten that cranked out, and they don't have anything. But every step of the way here, from the vaccination rollout, you know, they've had this mandate, the rollout has not recovered. In fact, you know, you had vaccinations at close to a million, and now they're back to around 750, 780,000 a day. These are bad responses. Just total and complete bad responses. So again, what do they do next? I don't know. It's hard to game all this out, but I'm not confident in their capacity to game it all out either. Uh, keep your eyes out in the next few weeks, though, because as these start compounding, they're going to have to respond. If their response is bad, that's going to compound even further. So, you know, the best that they can do, or the best, that the only thing they've been able to do is sort of shift from one disaster to another, so you're not seeing their open and complete failures just on one unique thing. So it's 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 quite a feat they're accomplishing here to have no real accomplishments and just a bunch of, of fires. And now this is basically just a triage situation if you're a Democrat. You're just trying to make the best of this, and I don't know how they're going to be able to pull that off. So keep an eye out over the next two weeks, especially I think the two weeks, because this is a lot of the stuff is going to come to a head here, and they're going to have to start making some decisions. I, I don't know what they're going to do, but that's the timeline there. So keep an eye on it. That is all I've got today, though. Uh, For the line item this week, like I said at the top, I thought we'd cover the actual date that Abraham Lincoln signed the executive order that was the official Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, The actual proclamation was issued on September 22nd, 1862, which was 159 years ago this year. The Emancipation Proclamation was set to go into effect on January 1st, 1863, so Lincoln announces it, and then it's set to go into effect in January 1st. Uh, And it did. The reason we celebrate Juneteenth in June is because the only way that the proclamation was going to be enforced is if Union forces were in control. So the proclamation was issued, went into effect, and then it went into effect by hard, hard fighting. It went through into effect by blood because the only areas they were going to enforce it were Union soldiers willing to risk their lives to ensure that the Union remained a Union. So that's why, you know, Juneteenth is the last place you, you get this. There were people celebrate because that's when the Union soldiers arrived in Texas and issued that out. So, uh, but it was a, you know, multi-year process here. We were trying to get this thing issued throughout the entire and enforced throughout the entire uh, United States. Or what was going to become the new United States after going through the entire Civil War period. So uh, I thought I'd, I, this is a, uh, this is a, a service that reads out this proclamation, I thought it was pretty decent, so I'm going to share part of the proclamation text with you here. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas on the 22nd day of September, A.D. 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following, to wit, that on the first day of January, A.D. 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons 
or any of them, in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. That the executive will, on the first day of January aforesaid, by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof, respectively, shall then be in rebellion against the United States, and the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented in the Congress of the United States by members chosen thereto at elections, wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such states shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, do, on this first day of January, A.D. 1863, and in accordance with my purpose to do so, publicly proclaimed for the full period of one hundred days from the first day above mentioned, order and designate as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are this day in rebellion against the United States, the following, to wit, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Palquamenes, Jefferson, St. John, St. Charles, St. James, Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, Lafourche, St. Mary, St. Martin, and Orleans, including the city of New Orleans, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, except the 48 counties designated as West Virginia, and also the counties of Berkeley, Acomac, Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Princess Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And by virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are, and henceforth shall be, free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence, unless in necessary self-defense. And I recommend to them that in all case, when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. Pretty powerful stuff there, I think, to hear it read out like that. It's, it's Because of the way it's worded, it's, it's almost better to hear it spoken out as opposed to trying to read it. 
I think some of the sentiments in it come out a little bit better when you're hearing it spoken by another person. It is called a proclamation. So I think that's part of it too. So uh, pretty cool stuff there to hear that. Again, that's the 159th anniversary of Lincoln writing, signing it, and issuing that. And then when you hit January 1st, that's when you'll hit the 159th anniversary of it going into effect by force of the Union Army, of course. That's all I've got today. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.